So 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Thanks, Emma. And uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome. And uh, particularly, this is your first time with us. We're really pleased to see you. We hope this is the first of many, many times that you will be uh, with us. The other day, I was uh, out and about, and uh, my phone rang, and uh, I answered it. And it was Lancaster Medical Practice offering me an appointment with my GP. My mind went completely blank. Is this some kind of mandatory health check for the over 50s, I wondered. I'm sorry, I said to the lady on the other end of the phone. I don't remember making an appointment. Well, she reminded me that I had, in fact, made an appointment or asked for an appointment more than four weeks earlier. And this was the call to ask me to come in. I racked my brain, but it was no good. I had no recollection. I'm sorry, I said again, this might sound strange, but could you tell me what's wrong with me? (laughs) And without making me feel too stupid or making jokes about memory loss, she consulted my records and told me, ah, I remember now, I said, that cleared up three weeks ago. Shall I cancel the appointment, she said. Oh, no, I replied. I'll keep the appointment. By the time I get the appointment, I'm sure I'll find something to talk to my GP about. Now, I tell you that story not to have a go at NHS waiting times. I'm sure the good folk who run Lancaster Medical Practice are doing their very best with the resources they have. I mention it because I want you to imagine if you could have a similar phone call with God. And if you could ask him the question that I asked that receptionist, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? And when is someone going to put it right? Well, if you could have such a call with God, the answer he 
gave you may look something a little like 2 Samuel 23 verses 1 to 7. Because what is wrong with the world is that the wrong people are in charge. That is God's diagnosis. We have the wrong rulers ruling us. Now I realise that one week after the coronation of King Charles III and a few days after the local council elections, slightly different things, but you get the idea, those might be controversial things to say. But when I say that the problem with our world is the wrong people in charge, I'm not casting any aspersions on our newly crowned head of state, who, let's face it, doesn't have a lot of actual power, nor am I questioning the rightness of our constitutional monarchy, nor am I offering to start a rebellion. On the contrary, the Bible is unapologetically positive about the rightness of human rulers. We read in Paul's letters to the Romans, for example, that we are to submit ourselves to kings and all those in authority over us because God is the one who appoints them to authority for our good, which means that whatever Charles personally believes about God, whether he believes in God at all, He is appointed by God, whether he knows it or not. And that is true for our government, our local councils, your head teacher of your school, your boss, even here at church. Whatever you think of our leaders, they are appointed by God to do us good. Now, the problem is not leadership itself or power itself or authority itself. The problem with our world is that none of our leaders have what it takes to rule well. None of them, even the best of them, have what it takes to actually make the world a better place. So what hope is there for our world? What hope is there for us? Will the world go on being this sick and sorry and sad, broken place forever and ever? Or will someone? one day step in and fix it. Well, come back with me, if you would, to the passage that Emma just read. It'd be helpful to have it open to Samuel 23. And as we turn to the Bible, if you're new to us this morning, you will have picked up that we are coming to the end of a very long story this morning, near the end. It's the story of a man called David, who was king of Israel around a thousand years before Jesus. And his rise to the throne of Israel and his rule over the people of Israel is the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, mainly in the form of historical narratives. And these books have been occupying us for several years on and off as we turn to the Bible each week. But if you have joined us at the end of the story, You needn't worry about missing out on the message of these books because, believe it or not, these seven verses, this very short passage, contains a summary of the whole purpose of David's life, a summary of the whole story. Now, that might be a surprising claim, particularly for seven verses of poetry, but just look with me at how the passage begins in verse 1. We read, these are the last words of David. Now, that ought to arrest our attention. 
Of course, this doesn't mean that these are the very last words that came out of his mouth. If we read on into the next book of the Bible, the story continues for a little while longer, and we see David actually saying some other things to his son on his actual deathbed. Those are his actual last words. What this means is that this is his final public statement. Here is the legacy of his life. These few words are when David sums up the purpose of his life. When he puts into his own words what the whole great story has all been about and how it is actually going to end. Not only that, but you'll see that it's a poem or a song. It's outside of the narrative of the rest of the book. And it, along with chapter 22 that we looked at last week, and Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel 2, right at the beginning of the story, those poems bracket the narrative from the beginning to the end, and therefore they provide a kind of authoritative key to understanding the whole story. They give us God's interpretation of the story, if I can put it that way. And what this means is that all the time we've been following David's story, something much bigger has been going on. God has been doing something new in his world. He's been establishing this little kingdom of Israel, and it was little by world standards. And through this, giving us a little glimpse of the future kingdom that he is going to bring about. It's just as Becky said, and thanks, Becky, by the way, for leaving uh, these for me in the pulpit. It is a little taster of the big thing that is coming. And so here is a small passage with a big purpose. Now, that's helpful to see as we begin, because it could be that if you're not in the habit of listening to the Bible being taught, perhaps someone has invited you to church and you're kind of thinking, well, this is the bit you've got to kind of sit through. This is the bit you've got to endure. Or perhaps you're thinking more charitably, is it actually believable? And you might be thinking, what has the last days, the last words of a, an old king 3,000 years ago in a different part of the world, what has it got to do with me here in Lancaster in 2023? How does it help me raise my children, pay my bills, pass that exam, survive another week at school or work? Well, quite simply because this short poem contains the future of our world. And therefore, it answers every question, meets every need, fulfills every human dream. It is a promise of a future in which the world God created will come to its proper purpose. It will be ruled perfectly by God's chosen king. This is the kingdom of God. And its coming is what we call the gospel, the Christian gospel, good news for all people. And final word of introduction is to say that just so you know, ahead of time, because of that, at the end of our time together, I'm going to ask you to honestly and seriously consider whether this kingdom of God is something you want to be part of, whether you're in or out whether you will take seriously God's promise and put your confidence in it so you can face the future with absolute certainty. So a very 
wonderful few words, but a very important few words for us to look at. And let's turn to the passage now, which gives us a prophecy, a picture, and a promise. A prophecy, first of all, in the first three verses. Before we hear the content of David's last words, we need to spend some time on the introduction to them, which is weighty and important and prepares us for what he's going to say in two ways. Firstly, it reminds us of the story that we have seen in 1 and 2 Samuel and is now coming to an end. Look at it with me. The oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. By referring to himself as son of Jesse, David is taking us back to that lowly beginning, as Becky reminded us before. Back in 1 Samuel 16, David was introduced as a nobody. The smallest, youngest, most insignificant of Jesse's sons. So insignificant they hadn't even thought to bring him in to meet the prophet Samuel. He was out in the fields tending the sheep in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. And so if you could have picked up David's school report from those days, it would not have said he'll go a long way. You know, if he works really hard at his maths, he could be king one day. (laughs) He would not have said anything like that. Which is how you know that when he ends up on the throne of Israel, towards the end of the story, you know who's done it. He's been exalted by God Most High. Exalted just means he's been lifted up. That's the story we've read. It was a a story of continual exaltation, of being placed higher and higher and higher until he is on the throne. And as we read at the end of chapter 22, actually, in in a way, ruling the whole world. And so as David looks back, he can see that something bigger has been going on than mere chance or human effort. He can see that this is God's story. God has raised him up to be king. But not just like any other king of any nation. Look at the third line of the poem and that word anointed. It's a key word of the story. It's the word from which we get our word Messiah or Christ. Now the anointing refers at one level to the literal pouring on of oil by the prophet Samuel which, slightly weirdly in my opinion, we reenact in our coronation of modern English kings and queens, as we saw or didn't see because it was behind the screen last week. But this anointing, this biblical anointing, this creation of a Messiah, a Christ, is a little bit different. Because when Samuel poured the oil on David back in 1 Samuel 16, we are told that something else actually happened, that the Spirit of God rushed upon him and equipped him to be God's chosen king, actually made him into the Messiah, the Christ. And what that means is that all of this time, David has been prepared as a shadow of the true Christ, as the mini-Christ of the big Christ to come, the little taster. So the kingdom in Israel is a kind of a dress rehearsal 
of the kingdom that God will establish when that final Christ comes. Which tells us the second thing that verses 1 to 3 tell us, which is who is speaking behind David's words. We're hearing here the very words of God. Now, last Saturday, if you did watch the coronation, one of the key moments, and I think the most moving moment of the whole thing, really, was when the Right Reverend Dr. Ian Greenshields, moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, received a Bible from the Dean of Westminster and presented it to the king with these words. He said, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule of life for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. Here is royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now look at what David says. He says he is speaking here an oracle of God. And in verses 2 and 3, we see what this means. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. I want you to see what an enormous claim David is making here. He is claiming that as he speaks or writes these words, they are coming from God himself. God's words on David's lips. The Spirit of God, literally the breath of God, has caused David to speak. Just as my breath is enabling me to speak, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, has caused David to speak. And so these are the very words of God. In other words, David here has become a prophet. And as we read these words of David, we are reading God's own explanation of his kingdom and his Messiah. He is speaking into the future as a prophet of God. David is speaking bigger than he knows with words that God has given him. And so if there is still a nagging doubt in your mind this morning, whether this really is worth taking seriously, that ought to answer it. See, when we gather each week as a church to listen to the Bible, We are not listening to the words of an expert or guru. There is nothing about me or anyone else who gets up in this pulpit that means you should listen to us. But it's because we are reading the very words of God, the lively oracles of God. That's why you should listen. Well, with that introduction, we now come to the actual prophecy itself. And we find in verses 3 to 4 a picture Now, we've sung or chanted these words already this morning. Let's take a closer look at them now from the middle of verse 3. When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. The prophecy consists of a statement at the end of verse 3, followed by this bold, vivid picture. And if you've been around at Morelands through COVID and beyond, you'll know these words really, really well. But let's take a close look at them now. Look firstly at the statement David makes. 
When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God. The English translation we have in front of us, it makes this look a little bit like a, a kind of a proverbial statement about leadership. It sounds like wise advice for leading an organization. Do the right thing, do it well, and you'll bless those you lead. Or perhaps it sounds like a kind of a CV of the kind of person we need. If we can find somebody like this, then the world will be a better place. Now, there is some truth in that. As I mentioned before, the Bible does not share our society's suspicion of people in authority, nor our culture's assumption that leaders are a necessary evil. On the contrary, God gives authority to leaders to exercise for our good. And when leadership is done well, it is a blessing. Just walk into any classroom where the teacher has lost control. It's miserable, isn't it? But a teacher who takes charge, everybody benefits. Just try living in a country like Sudan where government has broken down and everything is terror and corruption. It's a terrible place to live. I've got a friend who tried to uh, get his street cleaned by the council. Six months of emails toing and froing until he basically reached the, <laughs> the top person. And they finally cleaned the street. It's very difficult to get things done in this world, isn't it? To get things improved. And there's a general sense in which we look at verse 3 and think, if only somebody like this ran the railways. If only someone like this could get the waiting list down. What about the fish in the ocean swimming with their plastic Coke bottles? What about the strikes, the war in the Ukraine? All of this could be sorted overnight. If only we had a ruler like this, it would be like the Tom Hanks film, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. But unfortunately, our English translation hasn't really captured the original Hebrew. For a start, the word translated men in that sentence, or perhaps you've got people if you've got a slightly newer version, it sounds like this person's going to rule some people. But in the original, the word means mankind. This is a ruler for the whole of humanity. This is our ruler. And the little kind of crisp poetic line sounds more like this. It sounds like, a ruler will arise, a ruler who rules in the fear of God. He is coming. Can you see how that's slightly different to the proverbial sounding translation we've got in front of us? This is not a vague hope that somebody somewhere might one day come forward with the right CV. This is a solid prophecy about someone who is coming. A ruler who will rule every corner of the universe with perfect justice forever. And therefore, when he comes, he will do more than clean the streets. So what will he do? Well, let's look now at the tantalizing picture that is given to us in three lines of poetry. 
He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Now, you can see instantly, can't you, that this is an attractive picture. Last week, as I was preparing this talk, I went for an early morning run, and I don't know if you remember, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, it was one of those classic, beautiful spring days in May. Dazzling sunrise, mist gently burning off the canal, the dawn chorus, ducklings, fresh buds. I even saw a roe deer bounding along near Old Cliff, just half a mile from this city centre location. It's wonderful. Wonderful to be out in a place like Lancaster on a morning in May. It gets the heart beating. It fills you with a kind of hope for the day ahead, doesn't it? But of course, the next day comes, and then it's raining, and your to-do list is mounting, and we need a bigger hope than that, don't we? Well, this ruler is bringing that kind of dawn to the whole world. It's a new day, a new beginning for the whole of creation. When Christians pray, as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, this is what we're praying for. A new beginning for the whole of creation. All your longings perfectly fulfilled. Everything God intended put right. As we sing in that Christmas carol, the hopes and fears of all the years met in him. Notice three details that make this clear. Firstly, the kingdom is one where darkness is driven out. If you think about it, that's what dawn is. In the context of Samuel, David has been that king. The book begins back in the dark days of the judges where there was no king. Israel was stumbling around blindly in the darkness. And now the sun has risen and they can see, albeit with some clouds remaining. But this new kingdom will appear like the sun on a cloudless morning. And that means that all that is evil is driven out by the light. Remember the film of The Hobbit, or perhaps the book you've read? And that moment when the hobbits are being attacked by those horrible trolls. And what happens to the trolls? The sun comes out. The sun rises and the trolls are turned to stone. And when this sun rises, this sun king, the darkness of our world will be driven away instantly. Evil will be purged away. All will be dazzling light. Secondly, though, in this coming kingdom, not only will the darkness be driven out, but notice the grass will grow. In other words, as well as a correction, casting out the darkness... There is a fulfillment. The sun points us back to the creation account in the Bible where God appointed the sun to rule, to govern the world. The same word is used there. And just as the sun rules the earth and makes the creation flourish, so this sun, this sun king is going to rise and he's going to govern the world and that is going to make the grass grow. In other words, everything is going to come to its full maturity. 
the environment as we now call creation these days, the planet itself is going to thrive and grow under his light, unencumbered by decay and death. I'll listen to another prophet writing 300 years after David, keeping this vision alive. Prophet Isaiah says in chapter 65, Behold, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. I wonder if you've watched those David Attenborough sermons. They are sermons. They're wonderful, crafted sermons about the beauty of the world. But there's also a note of doom, isn't there, at the end of each one of them? That this world is spiralling out of control and we need to do something about it well if I can put it this way here is the great environmentalist who is coming the one who cares more than David Attenborough the one who will sort out the mess we have made and renew the creation but not only that he'll do the same for you personally in the Old Testament people various times are likened to grass normally the emphasis is on the shortness of life the grass grass and the flowers wither but here the grass is a sign of everlasting flourishing the sun comes out and children of God spring from the earth in the warmth of his light and so if you've ever worried that you are missing out on life you will not miss out in the kingdom which brings us to the third detail we must notice the most important one of all That little pronoun, he, at the beginning of verse 4. Not a theoretical person, an actual person. The arrival of a king. David, you see, looks ahead and you can see that he sees this tantalizing new world. A world of order and peace, a world at peace with itself, perfected. But in his vision, he sees one man, God's king, and he knows it's not him. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, the BBC drama Poldark. It was on a Sunday night, and it was a great end to Sunday to kind of finish and go home and watch Poldark. Remember those days? If you uh, watched them, you'll remember that at the end of a Poldark day in the Poldark family, by the way, this is sort of 18th century Cornish copper mining drama, that genre, Um, just if you can picture it. At the end of the day, Mr. and Mrs. Poldark would kind of get together and have a bit of a debrief, bit of a heart-to-heart. And I remember one particular time when Demelza, Mrs. Poldark, is very, very sad, and she's crying. And I can't remember the circumstances, but it was a usual sort of drama of, you know, death and destruction and Poldark being a hero. And she says, I'm crying because of all that's wasted and broken and lost in this world. And she looks at her husband and says, who will mend this sad, sorry, broken world? 
Will you mend it, Ross? And there's a long pause. And Poldark says, and I just love this line, I will try. <laughs> and you know he will try. You know, the next episode will come back and he will be a hero again. But he won't succeed. He won't be able to resurrect their dead daughter. He won't be able to put right the injustice. He will try, but he won't be able to fix the world. The tears that his wife sheds will, will, will return. And just as David tried and didn't succeed, and Solomon, his son, tried very hard and didn't succeed, and many human kings have been and gone and tried to fix the world. But David, a thousand years before Christ, looks to the future and he sees one who will succeed. He will mend this sad, sorry, broken world. And that's why when Jesus appears... Matthew declares in Matthew chapter 4 of his gospel, he says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Whatever is wrong with this world, he will fix it. He'll drive away disease. You'll never need to see your GP again. Those with dementia will have their minds restored. Those with disease, their bodies renewed. The depressed will be filled with joy. Decay will be reversed. Death defeated. Darkness turned to light. This is the gospel of Jesus. As Dan read from Colossians 1, rescued from the dominion of darkness brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But the question is, do you want to be part of that kingdom? Well, it all comes down, thirdly, to whether you believe the promise in 5 to 7. The final section consists of David's response to the vision of God, but we're still listening to God's words. It comes to us in two parts, Firstly, David refers to an everlasting covenant. Look at verse 5. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? Now, the key word there is the word covenant. It's a big Bible word. It runs like a thread through the Bible. And basically, it just tells us very simply, how God deals with us, how God relates to people, and how we are to relate to him. The covenant is a kind of a promise, but it's a binding promise that God makes to bring his creation to fulfillment. And you see it at all the big stages of the Bible. He makes a kind of a covenant with Adam in creation. He makes a covenant with Noah after the flood, with Abraham, Moses, and in 2 Samuel 7, with David. And each time, God is saying the same thing. He's saying, I'm going to promise to be determined to bless the creation. I will, no matter what, bring it to fulfillment. And so what we do with the covenant is we believe it. 
to take God at his word, to hear it, to receive it, to trust it. Now, in the light of that, the first line of verse 5, which at first sight looks difficult given all the sin and chaos we've seen as we follow the story, actually makes sense. It's simply saying that God has done what he said he would do. He said he was going to build David's dynasty, his house, his kingdom, and he's done it. He's built his kingdom. He saved his people. God has done all that he promised he would do, and David's sin has not stopped him doing it. He has fulfilled the promise we saw in Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. He's given strength to his king. He's brought this great reversal. He's done it. And God's determination to bless his creation and bring the universe to its purpose all now comes focused down on David's descendant. That's what he means by his house. God will never go back on this promise. He will bring his world to fruition. He will bring this salvation. Every desire of David means everything that he has been looking forward to as we've followed this story. Nothing is going to stop doing it. But it's all now focused on this one king. Well, that raises the question, when do we see it? When do we see this covenant kept? When do we see this promised ruler come to rule? Well, the answer the New Testament gives is that we've already seen it. We saw it begin on the day Jesus rose from the dead. Let me refer you to the very first Christian sermon that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, preached on the day of Pentecost, talked about David being a prophet, and he said God would place one of his descendants on his throne. Now listen to this from Acts 2.31. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. In other words, Peter is saying that everything David looked forward to, everything his kingdom represented, this hope of a renewed world, it comes true when Jesus rises from the dead. And Paul in Romans 1.4 speaks of the gospel he promised beforehand regarding his son who was a descendant of David declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a necessary condition for the renewal of the world because in his resurrection he becomes the king of creation and the renewal of creation follows on from his reign. His resurrection is bigger than one man rising from the dead. It's the beginning of a new world in which everything that ruins and spoils our world will be removed when he returns. Disease, disorder, decay, reversed. Instead of death covering humanity, our sin will be swallowed up in his grace. Instead of receiving the darkness that we deserve, we receive light and hope because our sin will be done away with on the cross. And so how do you get to be part of this kingdom? Believe the promise of God and put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus and look forward to his return, praying your kingdom come.
That is the Christian gospel, the hope of the kingdom of God. But there's one more thing we need to see in verses 6 and 7, and this is the devastating contrast. Verse 6, But evil men are to be cast aside like thorns which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses an iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. It's a slightly complicated image, isn't it, with kind of mixed metaphors. Suddenly we're in a garden, we're clearing the thorns, but instead of using gardening tools, we're using a spear. So there's kind of a warfare imagery going on. What is going on here? Well, we've seen the grass, now we see the weeds. We've seen life, now we see the thorns taking us back to Genesis chapter 3 and the curse of God that came as a result of our rebellion. But who are these evil men in verse 3? Well, in the Hebrew, the word is one we've seen a number of times in the book, sometimes translated worthlessness, but it's really just people who reject God's king. And all the way through the book, we've seen worthless men, people who say no to David, people who betray him, people who don't want him to rule over them. And that is what it means to be evil in God's sight, to be somebody who rejects the rule of his king. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? And the contrast is devastatingly clear that those who reject the light of the sun king must find themselves ultimately in darkness when he comes to bring his new dawn over creation There'll be no place in his kingdom for those who've rejected him. And so his light and his coming involves a driving out, a separation. And what that means is that without grasping hold of Jesus, risen from the dead, we can have no hope in life or death. Without Jesus, we are still in darkness. Without Jesus, we are utterly hopeless. Notice how black and white this is. So black and white, it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it, even to speak about these things. That there will be a time when the kingdom comes, that those who reject him now will be left outside the kingdom in darkness forever. And that is why I said at the beginning that there is a decision to be made this morning. Will you be part of this kingdom? Or will you remain forever outside? You might be someone who's been around for a while and be thinking, well, it's too late for this. You might be someone who's very young and might be thinking, I've got the whole life ahead of me to make this decision. But I want to suggest, however young or old you are, whether this is the first time you've heard a message like this or you've heard it many, many times before, you cannot put this off forever. In the end, you need to bow the knee to Jesus as king because he will be king. And bow the knee to him now and your future is one of life and light and life now is one of hope. Will you trust yourself to the one who has the power to renew this world? Will he believe his word? Or will you continue to resist him 
Well, you might want to take a moment to reflect on that. I'm going to give you a moment. And then I'm going to read the prayer that you'll find at the bottom of the sheet. And if you make this prayer your own and echo it as I speak it in your own heart, you'll be able to hear again those words from Colossians 1. And it will be true of you that he has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's have a moment of quiet, and then I'll lead us in that prayer. Heavenly Father, I am sorry for the way I so easily put my trust in hopeless human schemes. Thank you that Jesus gave up his life and rose again to give us solid hope of eternity in the new creation he came to restore. Please forgive me and help me to live from now on with Jesus as my King. Amen.